0: We're going to be continuing on in 1 Corinthians. And I often, uh, you know, many times, I'll pray before I preach. But I've had a song going in my heart all week. Um, so can you just help me sing this? I'm no singer. So I'm going to need your help. All right? Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so listen. So thanks, elders. Uh, so listen, if you know this, can you sing it with me? Let's sing together. Jesus. Jesus. How I trust him, how I prove him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Come on, let's sing it again. Some of you might stand to your feet and just lift your hands. Let's sing it again. Come on, let's sing. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. For grace to trust him more. Now let's sing this together. And oh, how I love Jesus! Oh, how. come on let's give him the praise let's sing that again oh how i love jesus One last time with everything in our hearts. Come on. And oh, how I love Jesus. And oh, how I love Jesus. So, oh, how I love Jesus. Because. Let's just end with this. There is none like you. That's Jesus. Love you, Lord. And no one else can touch my heart like you do. That's God. And I could search for all eternity long. And find there is none like You. Can we just sing that one last time as a prayer? And there is none like. So Lord, we ask that you would be near to us as we look at your Word and let it go deep into our hearts. We love your presence, Jesus. Amen. Amen. We can be seated. Amen. I love you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So. Uh, We are going to be in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, which um, we're starting this new series in. Two weeks ago, we started by looking at the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, I would like us to begin in 1 Corinthians 1, um, verse 10. Chapter 1, verse 10 is where we're going to begin. Now, just a quick reminder, the Apostle Paul... Um, had spent some time in the ancient city of Corinth, one of the major cities in the empire in the Roman Empire. And after he had spent some time there, a couple years, he moved on, and then he circled back um, to write them some communication. And, and just to remind you that uh, this was a relationship that was having some troubles between him and the church. And he, So in this letter, he's having to address some particular issues that are taking place in this particular family on mission in the city of Corinth. So what I'm going to do to begin is I'm going to read the entire passage that we're looking at as, as one thing, and then I'm going to break it down um, verse by verse so we understand what Paul is saying. The last time I preached, we talked about... How uh, Paul had started this letter, even though he knows he's gonna have to address some difficult things, he started this letter by first affirming the identity of the Corinthians. Um, He refuses, I said this two weeks ago, he refuses to speak to them at a level that is beneath their dignity in Christ. And so even as he says some hard things to them, he's affirming who they are in Christ. Not because the evidence, Paul's not just like looking at the evidence, he knows what Jesus has called them. And Paul comes into agreement with that. But right after he affirms their identity and gives thanks for them, Then Paul jumps right into the meat of the letter and he begins to talk about the first difficult issue, which is divisions in this church. So I'm going to begin reading in 1 Corinthians um, 1 verse 10. Um, Sometimes we do this, we haven't done it for a while, but could we stand today in honor of God's word? Um, And I will read this, it'll be on the screen. It says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters... In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one else can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You can take your seats. Okay, so let's go ahead and break this down a little bit. Paul begins by saying in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no doubt that Paul is going to be saying some hard things, some persuasive things, but notice that he begins with the language of family. Um, Paul sees these people as part of his family on mission. Um, brothers and sisters. And he doesn't command them like a military dictator. He appeals to them like someone who loves them deeply. He is urging them, persuading them to listen to what he has to say. So what is his appeal? Well, it goes on in verse 10. There's three parts to it. It says that all of you agree with one another and what you say, that's the first part. We could literally say, translating it from the Greek, that all of you speak the same speak, all right? that all of you say the same things. All of you agree with one another in what you say. The second one, that there be no divisions among you. The third one, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now, Paul here is not urging uniformity in this church. I said it last week, and we're going to see it um, in the upcoming weeks as we go through this book. Paul is writing to a multicultural church. Um, a church that has different cultures represented in it. And as a matter of fact, when we get to 1 Corinthians 12, he is going to say that when the Holy Spirit is poured out on a multicultural church, that we can expect to see a wide variety of ways that the Holy Spirit works and shows up because he is working through all of those cultures represented in that family on mission. So Paul isn't urging uniformity, but he is saying that... For this family on mission, the first things need to be first. In particular, a person needs to be first. Paul is refocusing, recentering this church on the person who should be the center of the church, which is no teacher, no leader, but Jesus Christ himself. So he's urging them to come together. Now, this is really important because Paul here is not just giving them a command, He's not just saying treat each other nice because that's what you need to do. Um, Instead, he is calling them up to their new identity. Last week, we talked about how anyone who is in Christ gets a new identity. We talked about these words that God calls us holy, that God calls us set apart, that God calls us the recipients of his grace. And that's true for anyone in this room who is in Christ as an individual. But Paul here is now talking about their group identity because it's not just our individual identity that changes. It's our group identity that changes as well. And Paul is saying, you are one because there's only one Lord and that one Lord, Jesus Christ, has one for himself, only one family. When we get to heaven, there aren't going to be multiple families of God, right? There's going to be one Amazing, glorious, multicultural family of God gathering around the throne in worship, right? Everyone who has been redeemed throughout history present there, every ethnicity, every tribe, every language represented there, brought together in unity around Jesus. But listen, this is how Paul's teaching works. Paul sees that because of the cross of Jesus, This is what this group of people, the Corinthians, have been made for all of eternity, not multiple families, only one family on mission. How many of you know, there's not gonna be denominations in heaven, right? There's not gonna be different factions of Christians in heaven, just one family. But Paul believes that anything that is part of that future eternal reality is breaking in on the present. So this is Paul's line of logic. The cross has made this multicultural group of people into one family that speak the same speak that, are, that has no divisions among them and are perfectly united in mind and thought around Jesus. The cross has made them that for all eternity and that eternal reality is breaking in on the present. So Paul is calling them up to what he knows their identity is, which is the one family of God. This is the appeal that he makes to them. He goes on to say, verse 11, here's the problem. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Now, we don't know really anything about Chloe. Um, She's probably a prominent businesswoman in Corinth. We can imagine that she's some kind of leader in the church. But here's what happened. Paul is writing this letter in response to two groups of people that came to him. The first was a delegation sent by the leaders of the church in Corinth, To ask Paul certain questions about things they were struggling with. But as it turns out, some people from Chloe's household, unbeknownst probably to the leaders of the church in Corinth, also paid a visit to Paul. And their assessment was probably far more candid, right? Because they weren't sent on an official delegation. They just have Paul's ear, and Paul probably asked them, How are things going in Corinth? and they spill the beans, right? And they give their honest assessment. And one of the things that Paul hears from these people who have come from Chloe's household is that there are divisions and quarrels among you. Why? Verse 12. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas, which is just another name for Peter, so the apostle Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. Now, to understand what Paul is saying here, You need to understand some of the background of the city of Corinth. Corinth was a mighty city in the Roman Empire, and one of the things that it prided itself in was intellectual enterprise, intellectual pursuits, um, you know, philosophers who came up with new and novel ideas. It was the first thing it it, um, prioritized, but then the second thing the Corinthians loved was rhetorical ability. In other words, people who you know, debated and fought in new and novel ways, but then were able to present those things in entertaining and novel ways to a crowd of people. So what they loved was intellectual pursuit and rhetorical ability. This is what they looked up to. We can uh, relate to this some in an election year, Right? Because it's essentially those things that we're looking at, right, in politicians. Do we like this person's ideas? And then their speaking ability, right? Probably means more than it should, right, for the politicians we elect. But the voting public is looking at the rhetorical ability, the ability of the person, right, to present their ideas. In Corinth, it was fashionable to connect yourself to one of these leaders who was a deep thinker and a good speaker, and to kind of consider yourself a disciple or protege of that person. And there would be these factions that would break out then. You know, people thought their teacher was better than somebody else. They thought the person, you know, I'm going down the street to hear this person speak, and it's better than the person that you go and listen to speak. It was kind of a a game of comparison, um, you know, between the people who lived in the city of Corinth. Well, here's the mistake that the people in Corinth have made. They have forgotten their new identity. Now they're in Christ, but they're still just acting like the average Corinthian. They're still just part of what that culture values and what that culture thinks is important. They've just tried to Christianize it and here's how they've done it. They've picked out leaders in the church, Paul. Apollos, who, by the way, Paul has high regard for. He's going to say that later in 1 Corinthians. Apollos is a good guy, a good teacher. Um, Peter, who, of course, you know, is one of the foundation layers of the church, one of the original disciples, the original apostle. Um, and the people in the church, they haven't split into factions quite yet. It hasn't reached that point. But they have started to quarrel. And here's why. It's because they're associating themselves with a certain teacher and saying, my teacher is better than your teacher. Paul, Apollos, and Peter probably would not be for this at all. But it's what the Corinthians are doing. Um, They're saying, I follow Paul, and Paul's better than Peter, so I'm in the better group. Why is he better? Because he thinks deeper, because he presents his ideas with more eloquence. Well, my teacher is Peter. And I think he does a better job. Why do you think he does a better job? Because I think his teaching is deep. I like his sermons better. I like the things he teaches better. He presents it better. And they're beginning to quarrel amongst each other over these things. It's really a petty popularity contest that has broken out in this church. Some of you may know or may not know the famous rapper Talib Kweli, but I was listening Um, to uh, a podcast of his this last week, and he was interviewing this um, uh, actress, Yvette Nicole Brown, and they started to have a really fascinating conversation about fame and popularity, two people who've experienced some of it, you know? Um, maybe not as famous as they once were, but at different times experienced what it was to be famous. And they kept using a word that I loved in the interview. They kept saying fame and popularity are just a vapor. It's just a vapor. And these are people who had more of it than probably any of us will have in this room. They said it's just a vapor. It means nothing. It does nothing for your soul. And they talked about how it really doesn't make much of a difference in the world. Because the more famous you get, the more you actually have to dance to the tunes of other people, right? To keep them happy. So they were talking about the traps that are in fame. That's some of why Paul is rebuking this church. He's like, you've made it about popularity. You've made it about fame. And it's just not what this thing is about. He goes on to say in verse 13, Is Christ divided? Here again, he's asking them a question, notice it, about their eternal identity. He's saying, in heaven, is Jesus divided? Is there more than one Christ? Are there factions in heaven surrounding different groups of teacher? Or is it true that there is only one Lord and therefore one family and you are part of that one family for all of eternity? He's reminding them of their eternal destiny, their identity in the future, which is breaking into the present now as Christ divided. And then look at this, this is so powerful. Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul's saying, who hung on that cross for you? Was it me? Was I the one who was killed for you? Am I the one that deserves your allegiance because I was crucified for you? Of course, the answer is no, there's only one Christ. Only one who died. Only one who therefore deserves all the glory. Only one who sits on the throne for all of eternity and all of us sing: this is the lamb that was slain. So only one. Paul's saying, it wasn't me. And then he says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul here, he's gonna say some things about baptism. He's not putting down baptism. Baptism is very important to Paul. It was very important to the early church. But he's just saying, the name of the person in the water with you when you got baptized means nothing. What matters is the name of the person in whom you were baptized. And his name is Jesus Christ. Paul is saying it in very clear terms. There's only one Lord, one King of Kings, one person that we worship, one person that we adore, and no leader, not even a leader in the church of Jesus Christ, can take the place of Jesus Christ, right? There's only one Lord. By the way, I skipped this part. You might be wondering why Paul says, you know, some are for Peter, some are for Paul, some are for Apollo, some say, I follow Christ. That sounds right, but Paul rebukes it. And you know why? Because this has happened all throughout church history. Groups split from other groups, and the group that splits says, we're the church, of Jesus Christ, right? We're the true church. We're the New Testament church. We're the ones who got it right. This has happened all throughout church history. And Paul is saying, you cannot use the name of Jesus to divide the church of Jesus that he loves. You can't use his name to do that because that's not his identity. There's only one Christ and one family. It's where we're headed and it's breaking in on the present reality. Verse 14, Paul says, I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. Here again, Paul's not putting down baptism. It's important to him. He's just saying, since you have made baptism part of your popularity contest, he's saying, I'm glad that I wasn't in the water with many of you. The names that he mentions here were probably the very first converts in the church in Corinth. And then Paul probably wasn't in the water anymore because the new believers started to baptize each other. They were probably empowered to be able to do that. And I'm sure Paul loved baptizing people. I love baptizing people. I'm sure Paul loved it. But he's just saying, I'm glad that I didn't play into this popularity contest. And this brings us to a concept that I want you to remember because um, we're going to come back to it. Paul realized that it, realizes that in this case, the best way that he can keep Jesus at the center The best way that he could have kept the focus and the attention on Jesus, notice this, is to fall back, is to fall back, is to not do something that he probably loved doing, baptizing people. Now, he might not have planned it that way from the beginning, but as he looks back, he's saying, I'm grateful that I fell back so that the attention could go on to Jesus. I'm glad that I was not at the center of all of these conversions, all of these baptisms, so that Jesus could get the attention. There's a well-known healing evangelist named John Wimber. Um, He passed away in the 90s. Probably the height of his ministry was in the 80s. He started the Vineyard Association of Churches. Um, But there's a powerful anointing for healing on his life. But as that anointing grew, and as more and more people were getting physically healed in his meetings, I love this about John Wimber. You know what he did? He fell back. He said, in my healing gatherings, in my meetings I'm holding, where all of these people were getting healed from incredible things, he said, I'm not going to lay hands on anyone. I'm going to let other people lay hands. Because he saw that if he started doing it, that there was a line of sick people and one person laying hands and them getting healed, he was able to see that this was going to put the attention on him instead of on Jesus. And he was intent on keeping it on Jesus. He fell back. And then this is what I really want you to notice as Paul concludes here. It says in verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize. Now here again, Jesus did command us to baptize people, but he's saying, I was not sent to baptize in the way that you're defining it. I was not sent to create disciples for myself, right? He says, I uh, was sent to preach the gospel, to put Jesus and his cross at the center. And then look at this not with wisdom and eloquence, the two things that Corinth most valued, not with wisdom that causes people to ooh and awe. not with eloquence that causes people to ooh and awe. lest the cross of Christ, pay attention to this, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That line blows me away. Are you kidding me? It is, Paul is saying, I didn't come with wisdom and eloquence because what would the result be? The cross of Christ, Jesus' own cross, would be emptied of its power. Not just the information about the cross, but the actual power of the cross would be lost if I packaged the cross in wisdom and eloquence and presented it to you that way. That blows my mind. Is it even possible to empty the cross of Jesus Christ, of its power? Paul says it is. How? By presenting it the wrong way, by packaging it the wrong way. Look, what is the cross? The cross is this instrument of death used in the Roman Empire to crucify criminals, and God didn't just ordain that Jesus would die. He ordained that Jesus would die on a cross, as a criminal, with all of the shame involved, with all of the ugliness involved, is a horrifying thing to look at. We've prettied up the cross, right? With our jewelry and what we hang on the wall and all this stuff. But the cross was an instrument of death. You know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with, you know, wearing a cross. I think it's a very meaningful thing. But you know, it's like hanging like a guillotine around your neck, right? It's an instrument of death, right? One of the most horrifying things to look at would have been to see a criminal being crucified on cross. But what did God do? He read, look at this, he redefined beauty at the cross. He took what was most ugly and he made it beautiful. Why? Because the cross was the place where God's love gushed forth in the blood of Jesus for humanity. It was there that our salvation was won. If you've ever wondered if God loves us, just look at the cross. This thing that was so ugly and scandalous became the very place where God demonstrated his love and his beauty. That's so different than Corinth that has a different definition of beauty. People who can present themselves well. People who are able to, you know, get a crowd worked up. People who can show how smart that they are. And that's how the world defines Beauty. The world would look at that and say, that's not beautiful at all. But God says, no, what really defines beauty isn't wisdom and eloquence, it's love. And so if love is what's defining beauty, then the cross is the place that is most beautiful. As ugly and scandalous as it is, the cross is the place where God demonstrates his love for us. So let's just think for a second what this means for us. Friends, I'm gonna say some things about the American church and I'm not speaking about any particular church and we've probably even been guilty of these, some of these same things. So I'm preaching to us, you know, too. But I do fear that just like the Corinthians forgot their identity rooted in love in the cross of Christ and tried to just Christianize their past identity, I worry that in the American church we've done the same thing. That we're drawn to people who can speak well to buildings that look beautiful, to things that look powerful, to programs that look exceptional. I'm worried that we think if something looks shiny and competent and is glittering and we put the name of Jesus on it, that we think that's the real thing. That means that God is moving. But Paul is saying you can't package that ugliness, that scandal, and that kind of glitter and gold without losing the message and the power of what Christ actually did on the cross. You know the sad thing about it is, it means that God, like he has always has been, is working in these ugly places, is working in these scandals. On the day that Jesus was crucified, you know where God was at work? On a garbage heap outside of the city where people were being crucified naked. With all of that shame that's where God was at work that day. That's where he was pleased to display his love. And I'm afraid that when we fall prey to the seduction of what it means to be successful as a church, and it's gotten worse as less and less people are going to church, as the culture feels more and more secular, we hope that if we feel smart enough and look pretty enough, and that if we can woo a crowd, that we'll somehow reverse the tide. That's not how God changed the world. It's not how God accomplished what he wanted to accomplish. When God was ready to change the world, he showed up on a garbage heap outside the city where people were being crucified. That is what displayed his love. And sometimes I think this means, you know, God is still working in these ugly places. I was in a slum in Mexico, people living in a garbage dump, Christians meeting there. And there's no doubt in my mind That the Holy Spirit, just like he manifested himself among us today, he's showing up in that garbage dump. He's ministering to people there. But if that's our vision, then we'll miss the things that God is actually doing. We'll miss what it is that God is actually accomplishing. I've been in a city filled with migrant workers who are being left out, left behind, and seen God show up in power on the streets to heal. God delights to show up in these places, But if that's our only vision, sometimes we'll miss this. You know, I walked into a church in Atlanta once. When I walked in midweek, there there was bedding and sleeping bags and a distinct smell. And, uh, you know, people's goods all around the church. You know why? Because this church that was moving in the power of the Holy Spirit, by the way, seeing miracles and healings. But you know what this church had done? They had opened up their doors to homeless people to sleep. Um, We'll miss that if we think that what we have to do is just pretty ourselves up, you can't pretty up the cross. It's too powerful. It's too holy. It's too sacred in God's love. As a matter of fact, I mentioned that town of migrant workers. It's Belgave, Florida. You probably know it. We're going to go again this summer. I'd love for you to come with us. One year, we've been going to Belgrade for years. One year, we show up in Belgrade. We're in this Haitian and Dominican neighborhood. And, um, and God, forgive me if I'm being too judgmental. But we uh, happened to be there on the same week when one of the biggest churches uh, in the nation was also showing up that week to do a blitz of ministry. And on one hand, I mean, how incredible they're painting buildings and planting community gardens and the resources of this church. You can't imagine the resources of this church and just, you know, honestly, the production that gets put on every week. It is something to behold and I'm sure it's well-meaning, but here's what I notice. We've been showing up in Belgrade for years, and you know what we do? We, get, we dress in you know, shorts and t-shirts, and we walk around the city, and we look for Jesus. And we've been doing this for years, because predictably, we find him there. The week that this church was there, you know what they did? They rented out a building so that they could put on the same level of production. We went, and, and the worship was amazing, but oh my goodness, the light show! Oh my goodness, the fog. It was like so much, you know, was going on. And maybe even more telling. I'm not putting that stuff down. I'm not being petty. Like, I'm just, or you can think I am, it's okay. Um, but, but listen, but here's, here's especially what I noticed though. You know, you know what happened while that, that church was in, like literally 2,000 of them take over the city to, you know, do their thing. They had hired the state police to fly helicopters around them to keep them safe. We've been going to Belgrade Glade for... I, by the way, I can't even imagine how much that costs. But we've been going to Belgrade for years, we, and we've never had the option of having helicopters. And let me just tell you, I'm just going to keep it... Can I just keep it real as if I'm not already? Can I just keep it real? This is an almost entirely white church coming into an almost entirely black and brown neighborhood. And we are, we are misguided if we don't think that poor people of color don't notice this. If we think that they don't notice that white people coming in the thousands into this black and brown neighborhood are scared. Who should be scared? <laughs> right? Wow. But here's what I see in it. Here's what I see in it. I see an inability to do mission and ministry and let go of the glitz and the glam. It's like, well, this is the way God works. This is the way he shows up. He shows up in these really beautiful, shiny things. No, he shows up at a cross. This is where his love is poured forth in one of the most dangerous, desolate places. This is where his love shows up. Now, what does this mean for us personally? And God help us if we've been seducted by this too. You know, God rid that of us in the places where we've been seducted. Seduced is the word. <laughs> I didn't come with eloquence. <laughs> okay, so what does this mean for us? Listen, uh, I- I'm going over, but I'm going to finish it in five minutes. I was preaching, I was preaching, th- uh, not preaching, I was hiking. I was hiking through the woods this summer and I was deep in prayer. I was praying for all of you. And uh, I just felt like the Lord gave me this vision. It was this really hot furnace, this blazing hot furnace. And I saw like two lines of leaders going into it. And here's just what I heard in my heart, the best I could hear. I heard the Lord say, I have made the gospel tab hot enough hot enough to form two different kinds of leaders. I've made the gospel tab hot enough in my presence to form two different kinds of leaders. And here's what I heard. Number one, the leaders whose starting place was this garbage dump over here, who because they lack popularity, because they lack being noticed, because they might not be eloquent or as educated or whatever, um, they might not ever get to be believed in. They might never get to lead. And I heard the Lord say, the gospel tab is hot enough to raise up leaders from that place. And so listen, if that's you, if you are always looking at other people and thinking, I wish I had the words they had, I wish I could prophesy like they had, I wish I could, you should know, there's room for you in the kingdom of God. This all started at a cross. This all started at a cross. So there's room for you. You need to know that. But then here was the other line. It was extremely gifted people. I don't know if you've noticed, for a church our size, we have a lot of incredibly gifted people. It blows me away. Some of the teaching ability in this church, the ability to lead worship, the intellectual ability of some of you in this church, it blows me away. Paul had some of that. But how did he steward it? Well, I already said it. He fell back. He fell back because this is what leaders like that need. They have to fall back. Paul knew that just because he had the gift did not give him license to package up that cross in something beautiful and shiny because it would be robbed, emptied of its power. He wouldn't let it happen. So he fell back. Can I share something very personal in my life? This is gonna be the very last thing I say this morning. <laughs> Listen, let me just you this on my life. From the time I was young, People have told me, Joel, you have the ability to preach. You have the ability to stand in front of people and hold their attention. You have the ability to present the word of God. I preached my first sermon in this church. I think I was like 17 or 18 years old. And right after, people started telling me, you gotta preach, you gotta preach, you gotta preach. You know, even in this church, kind of be honest with you, we've had a shared preaching model over the years, which I'll say more about in a second. But over the years, if I added up all the comments of people coming up to me and saying, Joel, we want you to preach every Sunday. We want you to preach every Sunday because you're the one with the gift. Now, listen, I understand what's well meaning behind that, but can I also just say from the bottom of my heart, it's dead wrong. It's dead wrong. And you know why? Because when you know you have a gift, and I know I do, when you know you have a gift, how do you steward that under the cross? Well, here's what you do you fall back. You fall back. I preach 60% of Sundays here at Crossmont. Gospel tab. (laughs) You do it too. (laughs) The, The leadership team worked out that percentage with me. And we guard it. And listen, we are well aware that not everyone has the same preaching ability who comes into this pulpit. But we do it. Lest the cross of Jesus Christ be robbed of its power. We will not rob the power of the cross. And it's so subtle, it's so easy for a person, a personality, a gift to become the center of the church. But was Jesus Christ crucified for you or was Joel Repic crucified for you? Were you baptized in his name or in my name? You were baptized in his name. And so it's his name that we adore. It's he that is at the center of our church that must remain at the center of our church That must be guarded at all costs, even if it means the most gifted among us have to be silent, have to fall back, have to not serve. If that's what it takes to get Jesus Christ in the center of our church, I would gladly sacrifice the crowd for the centrality of Jesus in the midst of his people. That's what I would take... It's what God has called us to. Amen? Amen? For him to be the center. I feel God's presence. I have from the beginning of this service. And pray because when God's presence shows up like that, things begin to manifest too. Amen. Ugly things. Oh, but God, Jesus, we trust your presence. We trust you in the middle of your people.